0: You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Jobs Day brings us
1: something for just about everyone. As job gains moderate, smaller than expected increase in payrolls, unemployment rate falling back to 3.6%, but also participation rising, wages up, maybe too much for some. And we're going to talk about the data in a moment with Acting Labor Secretary Julie Sue after we go to school with Bloomberg Economics editor Michael McKee from World Headquarters in New York. Michael, great to have you on a jobs day here. What did we learn? In the varied data, if I can call it that, that that actually matters for the Fed and the future of interest rates.
2: Well, I I loved what you started the show by saying, forget everything you knew yesterday. Because, of course, everybody yesterday looked at that ADP report of half a million jobs and and thought we were going to have a major uh, improvement this time. But instead, we just get a strong report. Uh And it is a strong report because 206,000 is still... Uh, more than double the number of jobs you need to create to absorb new entrants to the labor force. So we're still looking at a At a strong economy, 3.6% unemployment, and we're still seeing workers get raises, uh, 4.4% annual rate, which is, uh, we're likely to find out next Wednesday when we get the CPI report that it is above inflation. So people are actually making more than they're losing to inflation for a change. Now, that said, there are some things within it that are somewhat concerning. Uh, we did see uh, the uh, average hourly earnings tick up a bit, um, which uh, is was kind of a surprise. People thought that yeah. uh, companies were cutting back a little bit. And then uh, the thing that is going to be concerning to folks in Washington is the unemployment rate for minorities went up significantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the unemployment rate for uh, black workers is now uh, about uh, five point uh, is is it six percent went up from uh, five point seven, yeah. and uh, for Hispanics four point three o- over four, uh, so um, that was what the Fed was trying to do. Remember, <laughs> we, yes. we kept the rates lower for longer because they wanted everybody to get a job. So now, how does that affect policy going forward?
1: After the ADP report you mentioned yesterday, uh, people thought, "Oh my God, are we in for it?" It came in more than twice expectations. Are we starting to? kind of doubt the credibility of, or question the credibility of that data? Or what's what's with all the noise?
2: Well, there's been some question about uh, the, how accurate the picture uh, is for the labor market, because there are some things that the government does to uh, massage the numbers. They have a birth-death model because they can't account for all of the uh <laughs> jobs that are created by small companies just coming into business each month. They're not in the database. And then of course some go out of business. Uh, this month though, there was almost no change based on the birth death model. So that kind of throws that argument out the window. Uh, and there are others um, where they impute the number of jobs because uh, there's too, it's too small of a, uh, a sample to get a, a good national view. Um, and then we've seen some other numbers uh, like jobless claims inflated by uh, fraud. Uh, so there are questions about how accurate the data is, but it's yeah. it is it's reasonably enough accurate that you can assume that we still have a fairly strong labor market
1: and, and two more hikes that the view on the Fed hasn't changed much this morning.
2: No, uh, the view hasn't changed at all. Uh, the markets are pricing in. I think we've still got about a 90 percent chance of a yeah. rate increase on the 26th. The question that is up in the air is September. Had we had an even stronger report today, then they probably would be Wall Street be betting on a September rate increase. At the moment, uh, there's only about a 15 to 25 percent chance Mm -hmm. uh, for September and November. Uh, That'll probably resolve itself as we get closer to those dates and we see what future numbers we get.
1: Michael, great to have you, as always, helping us look under the hood here. The great Michael McKee, Bloomberg Economics Editor, on sound on and we do expect to hear from the president on this later on today he has an appearance uh, scheduled for this afternoon about something unrelated but he, we do expect to hear him uh, talk about the jobs data this morning but let's go to the source right now the acting secretary of labor julie sue making her first appearance here on sound on with us right now madam secretary welcome to bloomberg radio
3: thank you very much joe good to be here
1: Well, it's great to have you uh, as we try to understand some of the trends and the cross currents that are happening in the job market. This came in below forecast for the first time in something like 15 months, I understand. And we're starting to see a little bit of cooling. Are you worried that higher interest rates are finally taking hold on the job market?
3: Well, this is a very strong jobs report. It's a jobs report that indicates steady and stable growth, which is what we want. Um, it's 209,000 jobs, which altogether is now 13.1 million jobs created since the president came into office. Uh, it might be worth noting that uh, after the Great Recession of 2008, it took about 10 years to get to uh, to this kind of recovery. Um, and it's combined with an unemployment rate of 3.6 percent. Um, and as you know, I mentioned it earlier, the, the the trend about job creation. I'll also mention when it comes to unemployment, mm-hmm. um, this is the 17th straight month that we've seen an unemployment rate of less than 4%. And that hasn't happened since the 1960s. So overall, this is a sign that the president's economic plan is working, that Bidenomics makes sense, and that um, we're moving to a, a state of ste- steady and stable growth.
1: Well, we saw wages uh, increase quite a bit. Averly, uh, average hourly earnings. Uh, up 4.4 percent. The analysis from Bloomberg Economics that I'm reading this morning says monthly gains in wages and hours work to add to an inflationary impulse. I know you want to celebrate higher wages. That's your job, right? Job growth, higher wages, but they could also force higher interest rates. Do you worry about the corrosive effect of that trend?
3: Right. So, Joe, so we have seen last month we saw real wage growth, right, where workers' wages Exceeded inflation. Uh, we don't know this month yet until the inflation numbers come out, but there are signs that the same will be true. Uh, this president believes that an economy that does right by workers um, is the best, strongest, most resilient economy that we can build. Um, he also believes, and we've been all hands on deck on working to combat inflation. Um, inflation is half of what it was a year ago, right? We see that uh, at the pump and we see that in the grocery store. We see that mm-hmm. even in things like. You know, the price of eggs, right, which is now $2.67 for a dozen, down from over $3 a month before, down from almost $5 in January. So but, you know, that's that that's a real kitchen table issue. We do have to um, make sure that we are containing the cost of things. And that is one of the pillars of Bidenomics.
1: The unemployment rate, as I'm sure you know, for black workers rose to six percent, accounting, uh, according to our math, for about 90 percent of the recent increase in unemployment. Secretary, do we know why?
3: Right. Thank you, Joe, for that question, because we are also, you know, very um, focused on, uh, you know, what the president calls, you know, an equitable economic recovery, mm-hmm. uh, making sure that no community is left behind. Right. That's his whole vision of building an economy from the middle out and the bottom up. Um, and by many indicators, black workers have been uh, at the bottom or left out, whether it's uh, you know, good jobs, whether it's wages, um, whether it's wealth. Uh, and so it's very, very important for us to, uh, to to stay focused on equity. I will say here again that the trends um, tell a different story um, all of the unemployment rate for all communities um, is at historic lows. That does include African-Americans. Um, and the gap between the white unemployment rate and the black unemployment rate is also low. Same for the gap between white unemployment and Latino, white unemployment and Asian. And so we know there's more work to do and we're going to keep on doing it. But mm-hmm. overall, the trends indicate still um, not just strong recovery, but equitable, uh, equitable growth and an equitable economy.
1: So is, is this a, a rising tide lifts all boats approach in your view? Or are there specific things that the administration the labor department can do to get to that number?
3: So I think a a key to Bidenomics is the idea that we have to invest in America, invest in the middle class, create good middle class jobs, and then create access for all to those jobs. that includes investing in American workers. He rejects this idea, the the, the trickle down idea, right? Rejects the idea that if we cut taxes uh, for corporations of the rich, that somehow it's going to magically order to everybody's benefit. Um, And so his economic plan is to be very targeted toward communities That have not enjoyed economic prosperity historically. So, in the creation of these jobs, in manufacturing jobs, in infrastructure jobs, we are very focused on pathways for all communities, on equity, on making sure, you know, construction is an industry Mm -hmm. um, where. We've worked with unions and with employers to ensure greater diversity. And so making sure that we cut down occupational segregation, make sure that black workers have access to the jobs are being created, is a very high priority. And it's something the Department of Labor is very focused on doing. You
1: mentioned construction, and uh, we saw some pretty healthy gains in construction. Uh, And it it just points my attention to the participation rate, which held steady. But for 24 to 54-year-olds, jumped to the highest level in 21 years. I thought it was a typo when I first saw this. Uh, considering that level of participation, which I, gosh, I asked your predecessor, Marty Walsh, about every single month. was Where are the workers? When are they coming back? Now that we're seeing numbers like this, do you worry that we don't have the labor force to support all of the construction, all of the work that's going to come with the investments of this administration?
3: Yeah, it's a very good question because we do hear, right, concerns among employers about whether, whether, whether they'll have the workers. Again, these numbers, uh, you know, indicate very clearly that American workers are, are back in the labor market. They're back on the job. Um, we've seen women return at really historic levels. Um, you know, the highest labor force participation for prime age working women uh, for the third month in a row in 75 years. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I think that, you know, working people want, want to work two things to that. One is that we have to make sure that we are aligning um, worker um, desire to work with the employers who need them and ensuring the, the job training and skills to uh, to, to make that match. Um, the other is that I think that there are structural issues that we need to address beyond just workers coming into the labor force, which again, they've shown that they are doing. Um, we need to address things like occupational segregation. We need to address things like the, like the cost of care, right? There are Structural things that the president has highlighted that um, if we don't address those, it's going to be harder for um, for for workers who are not working to do so. But that is all part of uh, of the plan to um, to increase uh, uh, you know uh, access to childcare, mm-hmm. to improve um, childcare jobs, and um, so you know there's work to do. But we are in a period of steady, sustained growth, um, and we'll continue to do that so that um, so that everybody who wants a job can get one.
1: I know your time is tight, Secretary. I have to ask you about the labor standoff at UPS. We're going to be speaking a bit later on Bloomberg TV uh, with the head of the Teamsters, Sean O'Brien. Are you acting as a mediator in talks here to avoid a strike?
3: No. Um, You know, the president believes, as I do, in the collective bargaining process, uh, we believe that the parties um, at the table, working together, um, uh, working through hard problems, and coming to win-win solutions, uh, is that, that that's the way it's supposed to work. Um, I believe uh, that, um, that 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 that's what the parties are doing, and I have um, every faith that they'll continue to demonstrate what unions and employers um, have demonstrated uh, throughout history—that unions build the middle class and. Um, that uh, um, that that they can that, that they'll get the job done.
1: Are you prepared to remain acting secretary for as long as it takes to make this happen? Your confirmation hearing was in April, Secretary. When's the last time you heard from Senate leadership or Chairman Sanders about getting a vote on the floor?
3: Yeah, thanks for that, Joe. Um, so the president um, has um, nominated me to serve as U.S. Labor Secretary. I've been doing the job since Secretary Walsh left. Um, I look forward to continuing to do it. I am um, honored by the president's confidence in me. Uh, I you know, also appreciate the support of many, many senators and remain hopeful about confirmation. But um, in the meantime, I'm going to do the job the president asked me to do and the, that the American people need me to do.
1: Well, we hope that we'll be talking with you on a monthly basis here when this important data are released. Madam Secretary, we thank you for the time today on Bloomberg Radio.
3: That sounds great, Joe. Thank you so much.
1: Hopefully we'll continue the conversation on a monthly basis. Interesting that they uh, do now have the acting labor secretary out in front of cameras and microphones uh, for this monthly indicator. Of course, Probably the most important that we track on a monthly basis. And thanks to Michael McKee for helping us make sense of it. Coming up, we're going to assemble the panel. Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are with us here on the Friday edition of Sound On with a lot to talk about. Not only the overall jobs picture that we're learning more about this morning, but as we just discussed with Julie Sue, this standoff at UPS looking more and more like a potential strike that could involve some 340,000 transportation workers in the middle of summer here it's something that we're going to dig into as well with our panel and a bit later on was marjorie taylor green kicked out of the house freedom caucus or not
0: we can't get a straight answer You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Was this the Goldilocks jobs
1: report the headline would indicate, or is there more to be concerned about? When you look under the hood, some of the questions we've been asking this hour in conversation with the acting labor secretary and our own Michael McKee as we now assemble the panel to get their take. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, of course, Bloomberg Politics contributors, knowing that Joe Biden is going to talk about this later on today. The president has remarks scheduled for the afternoon, and you can imagine really already what he's going to say. This was the president yesterday in South Carolina.
2: Jobs that used to go to Mexico, India, Romania and China are now coming home to South Carolina. Now Enphase is partnering with Flex to make these parts here in South Carolina. And today, they're shipping their first microinverters made in America.
1: All right, part of the Bidenomics tour. Jeannie Shanzano, I didn't realize we had a major problem losing jobs to Romania. Um, I just have to note that hearing the president there. But uh, the news today, he's going to spin this as a win. But he also knows, when you take a look at wages particularly, that we do have a continued inflation issue and that interest rates are going to keep rising.
4: That's right. I, too, wasn't clear on the Romania uh, situation, but we'll have to keep a watch on that. Um, but I think he's going to echo what, what uh, the secretary said, which is Bidenomics is working. Um, but I do think there has to be a two-pronged message here, because the good numbers, and this was a good report, to your point and Michael McKee's point, this is a good and strong report for jobs. But the reality is, politically, that is not sinking in. So he's going to have to take a two-pronged approach. He's going to have to say these are good numbers that said we understand that you are feeling strapped by the cost of living by rising inflation and he is going to have to say you want us at the helm of this not who threatens to come after us, Donald Trump or another Republican, because if they come in every step we've made forward from prescription drugs to expanding social programs and other things is going to be pulled back on top of which they will keep tax increases for the ultra wealthy. So he's got to strike a two prong note, but he hasn't done that yet. But that's what I hope he would do.
1: Well, I'll tell you, Rick, he's he's got a problem here. uh, When you look at the unemployment rate for for black workers, for Latino workers, double that of white workers, this is something that he's going to have to start answering questions about on the campaign trail, no?
5: Yeah, Joe, I agree. I, I don't think this is such a great report. Uh, one, uh, it's going to put more pressure on inflation, which is the kitchen table issue to most families. Most of them aren't sitting around worrying about jobs because considering the participation rate, everybody who wants one has one. Mm. Uh, and, and and yet, at the same time, the bottom's fallen out of some of these um, minority groups who want to participate in the same labor market that others are, and that's not delivering. And... I think you uh, heard uh, Deputy Secretary Sue talk a little bit about like, you know, hey, we're really out there trying to, you know, play with these numbers and show that there's actual progress. But in this report, you know, unemployment of blacks went up, you know, from 5.7 to 6 percent. You can't spin that. That actually happened. So I think this administration is facing, you know, one critical issue, which is uh, are we going to live and die on a labor uh, report? Through this election, or are we going to tackle the issue that really people are care most about, and that's rising prices uh, fueled by inflation? And this isn't helping their anti inflationary program. And so, uh, you know, when the, the Fed raises rates because of this, it's mm-hmm. not such a great story. And then we got it looks like two more coming at
1: least. Jeannie, when you look at the participation rate, uh, just remarkable for the sweet spot, workers 24 to 54, uh, as I mentioned to the secretary, hitting a 21-year high. So if we're thinking everyone's back to work who's coming back to work, to Rick's point, how much of a concern do we have? And, and, you know, it brings us to the argument or the the debate over immigration reform. We have a, a legitimate worker shortage moving forward.
4: We do, and immigration reform depends on Congress acting, which is why the president is going to be out there pushing to get Democrats to take back the House so they can make some progress, because there has this has been basically a do-nothing Congress for the last year, year and a half. But, you know, I think we have to be very careful here. This is a good jobs report, decent job growth, decent wage growth, modest decline in the unemployment rate. I mean, yes, there are challenges, but to Julie Sue's point, to the secretary's point, 17 months under four percent unemployment the longest since 1960 you can't deny that that is a good number now that is not resonate resonating politically i get that but to say that the jobs report wasn't at least decent or strong is I think not to really read this jobs report we do have an inflation concern going forward and the president is going to have to address that it is a political challenge but I'm not so sure it is a numbers challenge because let's let's look at what we are facing 24 hours ago with the ADP estimates how about half a million jobs i mean so you know it's it's far better than it was 24 hours ago
1: well, it is funny. You know, it's the first time I think it was in 15 months, Rick, that it actually came in below targets. They've, we've been undershooting on this thing for a year and a half. Uh, but look, this is why the White House defers to the Fed. Right. They won't talk about the Fed. Rick, they don't talk about interest rates. They're so careful about that when they come on the air here on, on Bloomberg or have other public conversations. So you can take credit for
5: those higher wages. Right. The inflation thing is somebody else's problem. Well, they, they want it to be someone else's problem. As you point out, um, after stumbling around trying to figure out what their uh, administration's position was on inflation, uh, they immediately said, oh, but that's not, you know, our problem. The problem is their their government policy, which incorporates a lot of this job creation activity uh, that they're talking about, and it's been successful, almost 14 million jobs created. That's, that's a phenomenal uh, success story, but it actually has a negative impact on some of the inflationary uh uh activity that's going on so uh and 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 part of the trap is as you mentioned the the immigration um you know the chamber of commerce has been talking about this for years i mean we have tens of millions of jobs uh that are open uh that uh need immigration to fill i mean you just don't have the people here who will pick lettuce and do those kinds of jobs uh that uh that actually need to get done so uh, it, you know, it's kind of funny. Not everybody can be a union member. And that seems to be what this administration is completely focused on, that, you know, only well, union members should be able to fill the jobs that are unemployed, that well, let's are get currently in. open.
1: I want to hear from you guys on the UPS uh, situation. You heard uh, the secretary talk about it. 340,000 workers uh, here, Jeannie. How important will it be? We can ask a lot of different questions about it. But how important will it be? for her to oversee a successful negotiation to become the next labor secretary?
4: You know, I have to say, I'm not so sure it is going to matter. I think it's critically important for the workers at UPS, for UPS, for Americans who need to move packages and other things, I'm not so sure even success at this point is going to get her through this Senate. I mean, this has been a stalled nomination. We don't see much movement. The Senate Republicans remain strongly opposed and moderate Democrats remain opposed. So unless I think we see some movement with the modern Democrats or the Mm. moderate Republicans, I'm not so sure success is going to help move that along. That said, it is critically important that this uh, potential strike be resolved. I mean, if we think about it, if they go on strike, it would be the biggest private sector strike since the nineteen fifties. That's stunning, and it is you know followed up on what we talked about in December about the railway mm-hmm. strike and the impact on businesses, small and large, and Americans overall is dramatic and traumatic. So, um, not to mention obviously most importantly the workers um, yeah. who have a lot of a lot of cause. And I know you're going to talk to O'Brien, um, the the head of the Teamsters um, mm-hmm. later today. But you know he he has some very very interesting things to say about what they've been dealing with, particularly since the pandemic, as UPS it continues to make enormous profits.
1: Well, Rick, politically, here, not a good look for this administration, the union friendly administration, to have 340,000 people on strike this summer, right?
5: Yeah, no, we saw some of this in, uh, you know, post pandemic period where the supply chain was so disrupted that you know anything was going to like reflect back on this administration in a negative way and this will too uh if ups strikes uh and and there are holdups in in throughout the supply chain and uh, because they have such a huge market share yeah uh then it's going to reflect poorly on this administration that has made promoting unions its mainstay i mean they literally don't invite companies to the white house who don't employ union members and so uh i think this lands right on their doorstep and 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 I'm not sure you know what the solution is. I mean the 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 drivers get paid a significant sum of money, and 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 the head of the Teamsters is is wanting more cash for beginning wage earners, you know, mm. who are hourly rate workers, you know, in these uh, in these uh, facilities, and and you know, like that's a hard sell because how yeah. many of those are going to stick around? So. I think this administration better, you know, sort of jump in, whether it helps, you know, get a nomination done for Julie Hsu. I agree but, with Jeannie. With I think that's, a, that's, that's more about politics than it is about uh, uh, union jobs.
1: Well, to be continued on both of those, we'll let you know when we learn more here on Sound On.
6: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like, More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
0: You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your
1: podcasts. So, was Marjorie Taylor Greene kicked out of the Freedom Caucus or not? It's pretty hard to tell, even when you're asking. People in the Freedom Caucus. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington as we reassemble the panel. Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are with us. The headlines make it pretty clear. Green booted from House Freedom Caucus. I see on Politico. Breitbart has its own version of it. But we actually spoke with a Congressman Andy Harris, Republican from Maryland, Freedom Caucus board member about this vote that we knew had taken place a good two weeks ago
2: without it being clear. Was she kicked out
1: or not? And I believe that
2: the vote was taken by the entire, that the, 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 there was a vote taken by the entire group. But again, we, we passed it on to the entire group, and, and I'm pretty sure the vote was taken. But, so was she's out. By the entire group. Uh, as far as I know, that's that, that that's the way it is. That's the way it is. But then
1: we hear she's actually not out of the caucus. She'll still be associated somehow and... I'm confused if it even matters. Uh, Rick Davis, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure your thoughts on this. This comes down to a decorum issue following a spat she had with Lauren Boebert on the House floor, along with her alliance with Kevin McCarthy. And that's the part that is, I think, maybe important uh, to actual matters of the House and, and policy making. If you're aligned
5: with this speaker, you're on the outs with the Freedom Caucus. How sustainable is that? You know, I I don't think it's sustainable. Um, uh, It was partly her negotiations uh, to get the speaker uh, elected uh, that put a lot of uh, the members of the Freedom Caucus in leadership positions within uh, the House of Representatives. And and so when you're a caucus of 44 people, you know, less than a tenth of the entire House of Representatives, uh, you really don't have that much leverage. And I think we've seen that in some issues recently, like— The raising of the debt limit that that the Freedom Caucus vociferously opposed, even though many of their members ultimately voted for it. So the reality is, I think this is all bark and very little bite. I'm not sure what they can do to actually affect things in the future. Does
1: it mean uh, more difficult days ahead for for Kevin McCarthy when this is the response from his conservative wing genie?
4: Yeah, I think so. You know, first of all, could we just be realistic here? We're being told that Marjorie Taylor Greene <laughs> is not radical enough for the House Freedom Caucus, and the fight she had with Lauren Boebert, yeah. let's not forget, was over who could file impeachment charges That's against her. Biden first. But that, you know, has left her not, you know, conservative enough for this House caucus, not to mention we don't know if she's actually out because we're hearing that Scott Perry can't find her and so he can't tell her face to face that she's out so she's like you know being it's like you're well, being it served is yeah like you're being served but you're just going to hide and hope it goes away it's oh. it's very very strange and i also want to say Andy Harris's statement that she was referred because we expect our members, to your point, to have better decorum, particularly, he says, especially female members. Now, I'm sorry, are we in 1800 or 2023? All of that said, Kevin McCarthy, it can't get much harder for him. He's done a yeoman's work under really hard circumstances. It's not going to get easier. Um, you know, I don't think, I think the best thing going for him, no sane person wants this job. And so- Without him, who's going to lead this, you know, this wow. group?
1: That, well, that was all right. That's that was quite a take, Jeannie. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene says the house is like high school, Rick. Is she right?
5: Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> and it always has been. That's not new. <laughs> we um, and, and there's a. <laughs> wide range of, of, of personalities in high school and that exists also in the House of Representatives. I mean, by design, our founding fathers, you really wanted to rabble for a place to go and they, they built the House of Representatives for them. So uh, it, it's not actually an unusual thing. Uh, but the bottom line on this is, will it will it actually upend leadership? Will it upend uh, Republicans agenda in these committees? And I think all of this has zero impact on the leadership's ability to function, and uh, and the committee business that's in front of it. Uh, so uh, it's interesting, uh, and uh, I guess if I were a betting man and we had a contest between Marjorie Taylor Greene's success in the future and Lauren Boebert's, I, I would say she, Lauren Boebert won by uh, 547 votes, and her opponent just raised $2.7 million in yeah. the second quarter. So. Uh, I, I would short her and go long on Marjorie Taylor <laughs> Greene. <laughs> all right. There's the, there's the real deal from Rick Davis. Now, uh, there are
1: questions about why Speaker McCarthy has not endorsed his friend, his political ally, Donald Trump. And this is all somehow connected in the, in the uh, cosmos, I, I suspect, Jeannie. But the fact is he's concerned that if Donald Trump... Uh, becomes the nominee that Republicans will lose the House. And if that happens, he loses his speakership. Is he right about that trajectory? He loses not only the gavel, but will not be minority leader. He will not be the Republican leader if the party loses control in the next election.
4: I think it's very possible. At this point, anything is possible. But I do think he he is cognizant, unlike some of the Freedom Caucus members, that they won only by a very narrow margin because they were able to flip some of these very purple districts like places where I live in New York. And so if they lose that, and I got to tell you, the Democrats are fighting hard to ensure that happens. That's what Donald Trump was out there talking again about Republicans not supporting the infrastructure bill that is helping so many of their districts. And they will keep saying that particularly particularly in these purple districts, that he has a potential, not just is he going to lose the speakership, but also to your point, if he was the minority leader. So, you know, that is a very real prospect. I also think, of course, nothing is going to get the Democrats out voting in these districts like a Donald Trump nominee nomination, rather. And he knows that. So he's hoping to sort of wait as long as he can. But he's getting pressure from all sides.
1: So when Kevin McCarthy wakes up in the middle of the night, he's looking at the ceiling, Rick, and imagines that scenario. Is that the way this happens if Donald Trump is, in fact, the nominee? Republicans risk losing the House. And if that happens, he's not a leader anymore.
5: Uh, yeah, I, I I think that there's a implication, obviously, for the general election. And, and and right now, from what I'm seeing on some surveys, is that the Democratic generic ballot uh, is, is moving ahead of the Republicans. So it could wind up being advantaged Democrats one way or another. And that obviously is influenced by Trump to some degree. But I think there's a more micro reason. I mean, we were just talking about how hard it is for Speaker McCarthy to manage a unruly caucus. And and staking out a position on a presidential campaign where, you know, maybe half his caucus is anti-Trump that's, uh, that's right. uh, is actually going to make his job harder, not easier. Uh, and so he's caught in this wedge where uh, he'd like to make sure that the, the Republicans are in power uh, and, and in 2024 so he can continue to be speaker. But by weighing in on it, especially in the primaries, Uh, he could actually pull apart his caucus today. So uh, uh, once again, another reason why you don't want to be Kevin McCarthy.
1: Unreal. Uh, Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano come back for some final thoughts here on Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Senator Marco Rubio is looking to the heavens, and he wants answers. It's coming up next. This is Bloomberg.
0: You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
1: Senator Marco Rubio wants answers on UFOs. Pledging to get to the bottom of a whistleblower account that says the U.S. government is running covert programs that have acquired intact and partially intact craft of non-human origin ufos the whistleblower a former u.s. intelligence official identified in reports as david charles grush says the classified info has been withheld from congress and senator rubio wants answers as i mentioned he made it very clear on news nation Listen.
5: either What he is saying is partially true or entirely true, or we have some really smart, educated people with high clearances and very important positions in our government who are crazy and are leading us on a goose chase. One of these two things is true. Either what they're telling us is true, or we've got some people in important positions that are doing this.
1: Surely our panel has thoughts. Rick Davis Is he right? This is a senator, U.S. senator. Are crazy people with high security clearances leading us on a goose chase?
5: I hope so. Uh, I I think this would be the most fascinating scandal of Washington, right? That uh, that either uh, we're being led up by a goose chase uh, because of some weird plan conspiracy theory that somebody high up in the intelligence community or DOD have or that they're actually covering up uh, uh, real alien activity. And, and either way, I'm in. This is something <laughs> I want to talk about all summer long. Jeannie, is it time uh, to form the
1: Crop Circle Caucus?
4: It absolutely is. Hey, maybe the aliens put the cocaine in the White House. That's what (laughs) I'm thinking. But I'm with Rick. This is exciting. The Senate's hearings on UFOs over the last few years. Ho-hum, boring. This is going to (laughs) spice things up. Go, Marco Rubio. Let's get at it. And let's hear from David Grush and the rest. Did David Grush said something about we received a tip from the Vatican about a UFO? (laughs) I want to hear more about that.
1: And space lasers while we're at it. We'll see what happens with the Freedom Caucus bit. Jeannie, thank you so much. Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Thanks to producer James for the Crop Circle Caucus. We bring you the news as it happens in Washington. That's all we can do is report. Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com.
6: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang.